This morning, our passage is Luke uh, chapter number four. We're going to look at the first 13 verses of the passage. Luke chapter number four, verses one through 13. And the scripture declares, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. It's amazing that the Holy Spirit led him to that. And he ate nothing during those days. And when he and when they were uh, ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him. It is written, man should not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give you all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. And, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Uh, Just for a few moments, I want to share uh, from the sermon title, An Identity Crisis. We want to talk about an identity crisis this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the tremendous privilege that you give us uh, to not just know you, but to know one another, Uh, to know that we can do life together in such a way, God, that we are not just a group of people who are coming together to check off a box, but we are a group of people, God, who you have called together to do life together. God, help us even in these moments to see how your word is living, to see how your word is active, God, to see how um, this passage is so applicable to what we're going through today. God, help us to see the same scheme, the same attack, the same lie that Satan tried to give to Jesus are the same attacks, the same schemes, and the same lies that we have to face today. God, help us to be encouraged, God, that we not only have a Savior, but we also have an overcomer in Jesus. We have one who in all points was tested, yet he did not sin. God, help us to appreciate that and help us to live in light of that truth. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I believe that uh, we live in a world today that is full of what we would consider to be lost people. When I say lost people, I'm not necessarily speaking about uh, a person who is separated uh, in terms of their relationship with God. I'm talking about how people are looking for a place to belong. Many of us live an experience or many of us live a life that is marked by a lacking of belonging. We live a life that is marked by uh, looking for some place to connect. We live a life Uh, that is marked by this identity crisis where we don't know who we are, we don't know whose we are, we don't know where to fit in, we don't know where to connect, and we live life in such a way where we are looking for somewhere to connect. We are looking for some place to be alone. We are looking for something 
that God desires for us, but many times we look for it in the wrong place. If you've ever experienced identity crisis or if you're wondering what the identity crisis looks like, here's what it looks like. It's this, it's this, uh, it's this consi- consistent and perpetual question about, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? It's this consistent and perpetual question, am, am I doing what God has called me to do? It's this consistent and perpetual question where we're honestly and daily struggling with our identity. Do I really belong to God? Do I really have a relationship with God? Can I really know that God is my Savior and that God is my hope, that God is my Redeemer? Am I really a part of God's family? Am I really a son or daughter of God? Am I really forgiven? Am I really a part of God's family? Do I really have eternal life? And when you think about these questions, these questions are are legitimate and these questions are serious. And if we do not answer these questions the right way, you and I will suffer from what I would consider an identity crisis. We will suffer from wondering or we will suffer from going back and forth between one day uh, believing that I'm saved and believing that I'm secure and the next day questioning that. We will go from uh, understanding that we have a relationship with God uh, that lasts for eternity to the next day uh, questioning whether or not we've been forgiven by God. It's, it's an it's a unfortunate crisis, but it is a crisis that many of us face each and every day. It's a crisis that many of us faced even on this day. It's a crisis that, that Satan brings to us, and it's a crisis that Satan uses because in this crisis, Satan tries to connect how I feel with what God has already said. Did you catch that? A lot of times, Satan will attack you based upon your feelings. Not feeling saved, not feeling loved, not feeling appreciated, not feeling that God has a plan. And when, when you look at the text, when you look at the reality of the passage, what we must understand is we do not simply go by feelings, but we go based upon our faith. We go based upon our trust and our hope that is founded in Jesus Christ. This hope and this trust is not just wishful thinking. It is not this conjured up belief where we will our way to believe good things, but it is the object of our faith that makes our faith real. Many of us need to understand that faith in faith itself is not faith at all. All of us operate based upon faith. All of us possess faith. There is not a person in this room that does not have faith. If you don't believe that, answer a couple questions. Before you sat down, did you check whether or not the seat could hold you up? You sat down based upon faith. This morning when you, when you got to your car and you current, turned on the ignition, did you check to see if there was gas in the car? You, you turn the key based upon faith. You trusted that it would happen. Uh, this morning, when you, uh, hopefully, when you brushed your teeth, you got to the sink and you pushed the lever and you believed based upon faith that the water was going to come out. You trusted in something other than yourself. The object of your faith gives us an idea of what we place our faith in. Everyone, everyone under the sound of my voice has faith in something or someone the question is, are we placing our faith in the right place? A relationship with Jesus is a relationship based upon faith where I am using, I'm allowing Christ to be the object of my faith. I'm allowing Christ to be the object of my trust. And when you look at the temptation, when you look at the narrative in Luke chapter number four, it is a passage of scripture 
that challenges us concerning where we will place our trust. So to catch this, Luke chapter number four is a passage about trust. It is a passage that, asks, that causes us to ask the question, ultimately, will I trust my plan or God's plan? Will I trust what God has provided or will I trust what I can provide? Will I trust what God has ordained, what God has planned, what God has predetermined, what God wants to see happen, or will I call an audible and do my own thing and do what is best for me and do what is easy for me and do what is convenient for me? That's the mindset of the text we're going to this morning. In Luke chapter number four, we see very clearly that that the same uh, one who is just baptized in chapter number three is now uh, faced with this identity crisis in chapter number four. You'll see very clearly if you look at the text that, that in the text, Satan comes to attack Jesus based upon his identity. The very same Satan that tempted Jesus uh, in, concerning his identity is the very same one who tempts us in terms of our identity. When you open up chapter number four, we see that the Holy Spirit led Christ into temptation. The Holy Spirit for 40 days allowed Satan to have permission to tempt Jesus. In the text, it tells us that Jesus is allowed to experience this temptation. It's important for us to go back to chapter number three. That's why I love how we systematically look at the scriptures. If you go back to chapter number three, verses 21 and 22, you'll see that when all the people were baptized and when Jesus was baptized also, Verse 22 says, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and catch this, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is baptized, and God the Father vocally confirmed that Jesus is the beloved divine son. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one who would one day die for our sins in our place. I love the text because in the passage, it lets us know very clearly what God is pleased with. In the text, it says that God is pleased with his son. I don't have time to rehash the sermon from last week, but I want you to go back and, and, and consider how we know how God is pleased because God has told us who, what he is pleased with. In the text, Jesus uh, is, is the confirmation of God's pleasure. And in the text, it's good news because if we place our faith and our trust in Christ, the scripture tells us that God places his faith or God places his spirit inside of us, which makes us a part of God's family. When we become a, God, a part of God's family, that is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are grafted into the body of Christ. We are made a part of God's family. And when we are made a part of God's family, catch this, we receive the blessings and the benefits of a relationship with Jesus. Uh, we do not earn our salvation. We do not earn our acceptance uh, from God. But based upon what Christ has accomplished on the cross, we receive those things. Righteousness is imputed into our lives. We are the recipients of forgiveness. We are the recipients of grace based upon what Christ has done. Now, here's why this is important. It's important because when Christ uh, is, is faithful and when Christ uh, went to the cross, Everything that Christ accomplished is for my benefit. So to catch this, when I place my faith in Christ, God gives me the blessing of an inheritance of faith and inheritance of the relationship. And in, in, in inheriting that relationship with God, now when God looks at my life, what God sees is the sacrifice of Christ. 
What covers my life is not my performance. What covers my life is not my church attendance or how much money I give. What covers my life is the blood of Jesus. And since the blood of Jesus is efficacious for sin, since the blood of Jesus cleanses me and it purifies me, it pays the penalty for my sins. But catch this, it also brings me in right standing with God. The moment we receive Jesus we receive God's pleasure. The moment we receive Jesus, we now have a relationship with God that allows me to be pleasing to the Lord. In the text, Jesus is, is the one who, who, in whom God is pleased with, and when I have Jesus, I can accept that now God is pleased with me. It's amazing to me that in chapter number 3, verse 22, God says, this is my beloved son. But one chapter later, in a couple of verses later, Satan tries to pervert God's word. And Satan says in verse number three, if you are the son. If you miss this, you miss the whole sermon. If you miss what I'm about to say, you're missing everything that I'm talking about today. The way Satan attacks is based upon your identity. The way Satan attacks you is to tempt you to believe something other than what God has already predetermined. In the text, God had already said, this is my beloved son. This is the one in whom I'm pleased. And right after the baptism, we see the temptation to believe something different. This is, this is a temptation that we all will face. This is, the, this is the way Satan tries to come at us, to get me to disbelieve or to, to have distrust in what God has already declared over my life. All of us have got to answer the question, where will I find my identity? Like, where will, like who will determine who I am? Who will determine whose I am? Who will determine whether or not my life is pleasing to the Lord? And in the text, we see very clearly that it is God who already determined who Jesus was. It was the Father who already declared that Jesus was the divine Son. It was God who already declares who you and I are. That's why I think it's so important for us as believers to take a moment to step away and to remind ourselves of what God has already said about us. We've got to get to a place in our life where we, we remove ourselves from believing the lies, where we accept the truth that God has already shared with us. One of the lies that we believe is that I can find an identity apart from Christ. So many of us struggle with this identity thing. We think that my identity is found in my race. We think my identity is found in my education, it's found in a social setting is found in a marital status, is found in how many kids I have, is found in a career, when in reality, our identity is determined by Christ. Who you are, your value, your acceptance, God's plan for your life is determined by God. It is found in the word rather than being found in the world. When I looked at the text this week, I was so encouraged because when I think about it, Christ was not only one who faced temptation, but Christ is the one who resisted the temptation. Christ is not just the one who experienced temptation, but Christ is the one who experienced victory during the temptation. Yes, temptation was present. 
Yes, temptation is real, but Christ did not allow the temptation to lead to sin. Christ did not allow the temptation to cause him to sin. I love that Jesus faces temptation and overcomes uh, temptation because now Jesus is able to help me when I am tempted and in the midst of temptation. Uh, quickly, go with me to Hebrews uh, chapter number 2, verse 17 and 18. This is a very important passage for us to look at together. Hebrews 2.17 says very clearly, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect. That's saying he was a human. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, catch this. For because he himself has suffered when he, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What do we find help in the midst of temptation? We find it when we trust Jesus. We find it when we go to Christ. Satan will want to pull us away from the church, pull us away from Christ. Satan will want you to think that you can fight this battle in your own strength. You, can, you, can, you need to withdraw. You need to do your own thing. But in the text, we see that help comes from the one who had victory in the midst of temptation. I know this blows our mind. It's a, it's a theological term that's, that's hard to grasp. It's, it's called the hypostatic union, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that Jesus was divine but also had a human body, and he experienced temptations just like us. He experienced suffering and hurt just like us. He experienced hunger and thirst just like us. He experienced temptation just like us. Hebrews 4, chapter number 4, verse 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Temptation is going to be present. If it wasn't tempting, it would not be a temptation. But in the midst of my temptation, in the midst of my struggle, I am, I am encouraged to confidently draw close to the Lord. I'm encouraged to confidently go boldly to the throne of grace and ask God for help. The issue happens, uh, the issue of falling into temptation happens when I refuse to ask God for help, when I refuse to acknowledge that the struggle is real. But when I get to a place in my life where I accept that the struggle is real and the temptation is hard, I put myself in a position where I'm willing to go boldly to the throne of grace to ask God for help. When you look at the text, there are three things that Jesus did, the three responses that Jesus gave when he faced temptation. And the first response was, as he faced temptation, Jesus trusted in God's provision. Verse 3 says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Once again, the previous in the previous chapter, Jesus is announced as God's son. But we also see that he was a man. He was still a man. He was a person. He was not a ghost. He was not simply a spirit. Jesus was in bodily form. And for six weeks, that brother was hungry. For 40 days, 
dead brother was starving. He was in the midst of a crisis. He was in the midst of being ravished by hunger. Uh, from a supernatural standpoint, he could have easily done, some, done something about the temptation. He could have easily turned the stone into bread, but he chooses to trust God's provision. For Jesus, it was a temptation because Jesus could have done something about it. For you and I, it's not a temptation because no one here can turn stone into bread. It's not a temptation for us, but it was a temptation for Christ. It was a temptation for him to distrust where God had led him. I think it's important for us to see that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to this place. It was was the Lord's ordination for his life that he'd be hungry. I think it's important for us to realize that. We don't want to recognize that Jesus will put us in positions where we have some hunger pains. Jesus will put us in positions where we are lacking. I know we don't want to, I know that's the, that's the side of Jesus, that's the side of God that we don't want to consider. But in the text, the Lord allowed him to be in a position to where he had to ultimately trust divine provision rather than providing for himself. Satan provides a temptation, but Jesus responds with the word. Satan gives a lie, but Jesus gives an answer. He's literally quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, when it says, Man shall not live off bread alone. In that verse, it says, But every word that comes out of the mouth of God. By quoting Deuteronomy, Jesus is saying, I will not complain about my circumstances. He's saying, I will accept where God has me. He's saying, I will accept where the Lord has led me. He's saying, I will be content with the situation that God has put me in. I am not going to uh, shake my fist at God. I'm not going to try to figure this thing out on my own. He's saying, I will accept that the Lord has led me to a place where I'm hungry, where I'm famished. The Lord has led me to a place where I am tempted to do something outside of his will. But even in the midst of the temptation, Jesus is willing to do what God had called him to do. He's willing to reject the scheme of Satan to trust the provision of God. Here's how this is applicable for us today. No, you cannot turn stone into bread. But there are going to be moments in your life where you can kind of circumvent God's plan. You can put your money to it or your relationships to it. You can make a couple phone calls and you can try to lead yourself out of the, the 40 days. You can try to get out of the fasting. You can try to get out of being hungry. You can try to remove yourself from the hard place. But the text is telling us that, that, that Jesus was willing to accept where God had led him to be. I, I know this is going to be tough for some of us to hear. But we need to take some moments to accept where God has us. I know it's hard. I know it's tough. I know where we are right now is not where we had planned to be. I know it's easy for us to look at the the grass being greener on the other side. It's easy for us to think that if certain things had happened differently, if certain scenarios had played out differently, that, that I should be in a different place. But in the text, you see very clearly that it was by divine appointment that Jesus goes to the wilderness. And as a part of the divine appointment, Jesus has some hunger pains in his life. 
So first, as we face temptation, we must trust God's provision. But secondly, as we trust, as we face temptation, we must trust God's plan. Verse 5 says, and he took, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I will give you all authority uh, and their glory. For it has been delivered unto me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan presents this fantasy-like vision of the world in which the nation stood ready to abandon their idols and accept Christ. It's amazing to me that when you look at the text, when you look at the Bible, what is being presented is Jesus being the Savior of the world without any pain. The enemy is promising that he could be the Savior of Israel with no weeping. He could be the Savior of the world with no crucifixion. He could have the world's acceptance without going through suffering. That's what Satan's, that's what Satan's offering here in the text. He's offering this idea that you can have everything that you want, but you can just take this magic pill and get it. You can have everything you've ever desired, but you don't have to work hard to get it. You can have everything that you've ever wanted, but you just kind of can circumvent the hard moments to accept what I have done. It's amazing to me. When you look at it, Jesus answered. He says, he answers by once again quoting the scriptures. Verse 8 says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus drew himself to a place where he was willing to understand that God's plan of saving the world, I want to say this the right way, God's plan for saving the world required suffering. It required a death. When we go back to the Old Testament, we see very clearly that the Lord promised that there will be a Messiah who will be crushed, who will be beaten and broken and bruised. Some of us will say, like, hey, man, why, why don't you just accept it? Why don't you just take it? Like, you can, you can bypass all that hard stuff. You can bypass all that pain. You can bypass all the, all the bad stuff. Just take it. Just take the easy way out. But taking the easy way out would have been contradictory to what God had already ordained. To take the easy way out would, would have meant that Jesus would not have fulfilled the promise of God. To take the way out would have meant that he would have succumbed to this lie that you can be, uh, that you can have this easy path of no resistance, of no suffering, of no persecution. You can just live your life and God is going to be pleased because you get to uh, make everything work out together for the, for the good at the end. It's a lie. When you look at the text, when you look at the passage, what Satan was saying was what God wants for you is different than what, well, here's what Satan is saying. What I'm offering you is better than what God has ordained for you because of what I'm offering you can be received without anything hard. What I'm offering you can be received without any suffering. What I'm offering you can be received without any persecution, without any pain, without any beating, without any mocking. In the text, part of the sufferings of Christ and part of the humiliation of Jesus was a part of God's plan to fully deal with sin. If Jesus does not go to the cross, if Jesus does not bear his life, if Jesus does not shed his blood, if Jesus does not die for our sins in our place, catch this, 
There is no forgiveness. There is no propitiation. There is no righteousness imputed into us. There is no freedom in Christ. There is no gospel if Jesus does not go to the cross. To, to, to try to do it another way was to try to do it in a way where we would not experience God's best today. It's amazing to me when you look at the text. This is not just a temptation for, for Jesus, but this is also a temptation for us. All of us, everyone under the sound of my voice, is tempted to take the easy way out every day. Man, that's studying that Bible stuff, that going to church stuff, that being a good steward stuff, man, that loving my enemy stuff, man, that serving stuff, man, that humility stuff, man, that being content stuff. Man, that's, that's silly. Don't do that. Like you, you, can, you can get everything you want and you can kind of skip past all the hard stuff. And the reality of it is in the Christian life, you can't skip over some things. There's some things that God has to allow you to experience so that he can produce something in your life. That's why Luke tells us in Luke 9, 23, it tells us very clearly. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. I love Elizabeth Elliot's point to this, to this passage. She says, it is he who is no fool who will give away what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot earn. As a believer... We are willing to give our lives away. We're willing to sacrifice in such a way where we allow the Lord to give us more than we lose. And we're trying to live this safe, comfortable, convenient, cushy life with no hard times and nothing bad. We lose out on an opportunity to invest in something that will produce something greater in our lives. So first, as we face temptation, we must trust God's provision. And secondly, as we face temptation, we must trust God's plan. But lastly, as we face temptation, we must trust God's protection. Verse 9 says, and he took to him, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Having just given him uh, two temptations, uh, Satan recognized that Jesus is going to respond by giving the word. Now, in the third temptation, uh, Satan literally quotes Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a famous uh, wisdom psalm. It is celebrated as a, as a promise that Jehovah would protect those who are faithful. Psalm 91 is one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture because it reminds us that the Lord is faithful to protect those who he loves. And by pr providing this psalm, Satan is essentially twisting the scripture. He's perverting uh, the truth of God's word. He's saying, you are a faithful man. He's saying, you have been faithful. You have stood on the word. And since you stood on the word, why don't you just take a dive off this mountain? Because God has promised to protect you. Since God has promised to protect you, why don't you just jump off? Just, just go for it. And in going for it, the world's going to see that you really are a man of God. The world's going to really see that you are you, who you say you are. So just jump off. And give, just go do it. 
Verse 12, Jesus says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Essentially, he is quoting uh, Deuteronomy 6.16 once again. Uh, even from the passage, you'll see what's being communicated here is, yes, the Lord will protect us. And yes, Psalm, Psalm 91 is a powerful passage that we need to consider even to this day. But I want you to catch this. What Satan was providing or what Satan was offering was not a greater dependence upon God. What Satan was offering was a life of defiance to God. The difference here, he wasn't offering him an opportunity to trust God at a deeper level. He was offering him an opportunity to, to defy what God had already told him to do. When you look at Psalm 91, the promise of divine rescue does not mean that we can live in such a way where we are testing God. The, the, the promise of divine rescue is not, um, is not this, this uh, wand that we can wave that obligates God, to do what, obligates God to do whatever we want God to do. I love the passage because Jesus is showing us that in the third temptation... Jesus is reminding us all that we need to be committed to not putting the Lord in a position to where we are trying to prove something. I want you to, I want you to look at it from this perspective. There's a lot of us who've gotten to this place to where we misquote scripture. And we just kind of slap a, a good passage on anything. Well, one of the passages that we just love to slap on everything Anybody know it? Can somebody guess it? What's the one passage we slap on everything? Jeremiah 29. 29. That's not the one I'm looking for. What's another one? Philippians 4.13. Give me one more. Clinton is in the spirit this morning. (laughs) God works all things together. So it don't matter what we do. We just 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 take a dive. Because at the end of the day, God's gonna work all things together. Here's why, this is, here's why this is scary, right? I'm not fussing to nobody today. There are too many of us who make decisions where we are accepting what Satan is tempting us to do, and that's to put the Lord to the test. We know, we know things are wrong. We know that debt that we're in is putting the Lord to the test. We know that we didn't need to buy that thing. But we want to slap, well, the Lord is going to provide for me. All things are going to work together for the good. We know we don't need to be in that relationship. We know it. I know they're fine. I know they got abs. I know they got that shape that you like. But they don't love Jesus. And instead of trusting and waiting on what God has told us to do, we want to slap. God's going to work it out for the good. There's some of us in our careers. We've made really, really poor decisions. We have made a swan dive. We just jumped out there knowing that we're doing what God has not called us to do. And we're going to slap on the Lord's going to work it together. And yes, God specializes 
and putting together broken pieces. I want to say that again. God is the one who is able to put together the broken pieces of our life. But I want you to also hear this very clearly. I don't need to test God. And I don't need to put God in a position to where I know I'm doing the exact opposite of what God has called me to do. And then once I'm in pain and shame and brokenness, then expect God to come in and pick up the pieces. God does pick up the pieces because he loves us. He cares for us more than we could ever know. But maturity in the Christian life says, I'm not going to put God to the test that way. Maturity in the Christian life says, I want to be obedient to the Lord and I want to trust God however he chooses to provide because he ultimately has the perfect plan for my life. I'm done. Captain, you can come on back up. We're going to close this morning. To me, the temptation passage, and actually the entire band can come, back, come on back up. The temptation passage is super important because this is not a one-time thing, right? Like you're not going to get to the place in your life where you have temptation once and you never have it again. If you go back to verse 13, it says literally, Satan came back with more temptation at the opportune time. There's so, many, there's so many examples of this in the text. When Jesus goes, Jesus at the, at the Last Supper, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he's telling them that he has to go. He has to die. He's going to be arrested. What does Peter say? No, Lord. You don't have to go. He says, no, Lord. We're not going to let that happen. Even in that, Satan was using Peter to give an option other than God's plan. Even on the cross, when, when Jesus was suffering, when Jesus was, was, was enduring the sins of the world, what did they say? He said, come down from the cross, save yourself, come off that cross. Call. No, he had to get to a place where he was willing to accept what God had called him to do. Like the temptations of Satan don't stop once you have victory. But I want to encourage you and challenge you that the temptations of Satan and the attacks of Satan continue to come as long as we are on this side of heaven. So here's, here's the applications for today. Temptation for us is a good thing because temptation reminds us that hunger is a part of God's plan. You being uncomfortable and you being in a position where you don't have everything you want is a part of God's plan for your life. Anybody who is telling you differently is lying to you. Jesus was led to a place to where he, would, he was going to be hurting physically. And that was a part of God's plan for his life. Now, catch, catch me on this one. I'm not justifying when people are sinning. I'm not justifying... Because I was, I was speaking to someone this week who was in a situation where there's a domestic violence thing. And the question was, should they stay? Should they go? It's not God's will for you to put yourself in a position where you're being beat, you're being raped, you're being murdered. Do not hear me saying that that is a part of what God wants for you. I'm not saying that. Hear me clearly. What I am saying, though, is there are things that you want. There are parts of your life that are that are hunger pains that you want to change, and that is a part of God's plan for your life. That is a part of you having to trust God's provision and stay exactly where you are versus trying to make it work in your own strength. So first, temptation reminds us that hunger 
is a part of God's plan. Secondly, temptation reminds us that humility is also a part of God's plan. That humility says to me, I'm going to accept what God has me. I'm going to be thankful for what the Lord has me. I'm going to pray for change. I'm going to pray that God uh, works a miracle, but I'm going to humbly accept whatever situation I'm in. Sister Rachel um, mentioned Philippians 4.13. Any passage in the Bible is one of the greatest passages of the Bible. So don't hear, hear me on that one, right? But if you were to go back a little bit before Philippians 4.13, you'll see very clearly that Paul says, I know how to be abased and abound. I know how to have much and how to have lean. He's saying, I've, I've had days of feast and days of famine. He's saying, because I know that God is God and sovereign on both sides, then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not the, the verse we put on it when I need to pass my test and have a great game. <laughs> it's not what he's saying. He's saying, because Christ is with me, humbly I can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So temptation reminds us that hunger is a part of God's plan. Temptation reminds us that humility is a part of God's plan. And then lastly, temptation reminds us that hope is a part of God's plan. Our hope is in Christ. The blessed hope that we have is not in how well I do or how many times I come to church or how well I check off boxes. My hope is in nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness.